afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome one and welcome all to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. What an exciting night we're going to have. It's just great to be together tonight, and I think that uh, I certainly need a prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit. Father, what an exciting night we have tonight. We stand on the, the verge of eternity as we think through these amazing themes that you've given centuries ago in the book of Daniel. Father, please give us the Holy Spirit to rightly divide the word of truth that we might hear your voice saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so welcome to Prophecy Seminar Lesson 2. And that is the lesson that we are working on tonight. If you still have it stuck in your folder, then you can click and clack to your heart's content <laughs> back there and uh, please take it out of the folder. We're at the top of page two. Cosmic warfare. It sounds like something coming out of Star Wars. Strange as it may seem, the book of Daniel reveals a cosmic warfare going on behind the scenes. The rise and fall of empires and kingdoms are not simply happenings in world history. All that is taking place is a part of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. The book of Daniel can be correctly understood only when it's seen in the context of this cosmic struggle. In order to understand any book, one needs to first ascertain um, of all what is the main theme of the book, what the book is trying to reveal. And so in this lesson tonight, we'll draw aside the curtain and see that the central theme of the book of Daniel is this cosmic drama being played in ancient Babylon. What happened there is symbolic of the great final conflict, which the prophecies of Daniel point out will take place in the end of time. As lesson one revealed, the stories of the book of Daniel dramatize what the prophecies are predicting. What happened to God's people in ancient Babylon is a foretaste of what will happen to God's people in the time of the end. Just as cosmic forces were at work against God's people in the time of ancient Babylon, so in the last days, there are cosmic forces at work seeking to destroy those who are faithful to Jesus Christ. Before we get into question number one, halfway down page two, I have five general theme questions. Tonight, we're going to discover what are five names for Satan. We're going to ask, where did he come from? We're going to find out who created the devil and Satan. And we're going to find out how he actually descended from his heavenly estate to become known as the evil one, the prince of this world. And then number five, we need to ask the question, why didn't God immediately destroy Satan when 
he rebelled. So here we are in uh, lesson two, and uh, our heading is Cosmic Warfare in Daniel, and I'm asking you to join me for question one. As the book of Daniel opens, who appears to be defeated? And we go to Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. And so the answer there, friends, is King Jehoiakim and God's people. Um, friends, in ancient times, kings would invade other countries, often when they were weak and unprotected. They would then raid their temple treasuries. They would raid their gods and take those back as war trophies and put them in the house of their gods, showing that their gods were more powerful than the gods of the surrounding nations. And that's exactly what's going on here. Let me share with you the note. The book of Daniel opens with a tremendous defeat for God's people. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, is delivered into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and the people of God are taken in captivity. It appears that the evil Babylonians are winning in the struggle with God's people. And then in the world today, evil often seems to triumph and good seems to be defeated. Daniel reminds us that the same seemed true in his day. Question two, what ultimately happens to God's people in Daniel 12 and verse one? At that time, shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book. Now, I've highlighted the answers in yellow text. I'll use other colors um, like blue, but the yellow text is the answer. And there's our answer that. God's people certainly will be delivered. And that's the good news of the book. So friends, Daniel chapter one starts with defeat, but it ends up with an almighty deliverance. And in these last days that we're living in with all the stress of modern life, with a pandemic and all the other things that are going on, I believe that you need some good news. And the Prophecy Seminar every Tuesday and Wednesday night at 7.30 is where you're going to get a dose of good news from God's word. I hope you all can say amen. The note under two says, while the book of Daniel begins in an apparent defeat for the people of God, it ends with complete victory for God's people who will ultimately be delivered. While the book of Daniel reveals a cosmic drama between the forces of good and evil, it reveals that in the end, God's and God's people will be victorious. All right, if you join me at the bottom two, our first heading is the mighty deliverer of the book of Daniel. The theme of the book of Daniel is the cosmic struggle between the forces of good and evil. In any warfare, there is a villain and a deliverer. The villain in this instance is Satan. The deliverer is Christ. Just as Christ delivered his people from the cosmic struggle going on in ancient Babylon, so Christ will be the 
final deliverer of God's people at the end of time. Let us notice how the book of Daniel presents Christ as the mighty deliverer of God's people. Please join me at the top of page three for question three. After Nebuchadnezzar cast Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into the fiery furnace, how many people did he see in the fire? And so we go to verse 25. Look, King Nebuchadnezzar answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. And so the king is astonished to see after throwing in three men, Daniel's three friends, he sees a fourth man in the fire. He said, and I see four men loose. While Nebuchadnezzar only had three men cast into the fire, he now sees a fourth one walking with the three. So that obviously leads us to question four. Who is this fourth one who walks through the fire with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Back to Daniel 3.25. Look, he answered, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Isn't this amazing? King Nebuchadnezzar says the form of the fourth. Friends, I've got a little uh, extra note that I'd like to share in the lesson. If you direct your attention to the screen. I'm wondering if you actually thought about this question when you were doing your lesson. Did you wonder how did King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, know what the Son of God looked like? There's King Nebuchadnezzar. The three boys are thrown in. We're not going to share tonight about where Daniel was. We're going to leave that for Daniel chapter 3. But when we go to the actual Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, and there's the Hebrew Bible, my interlinear Hebrew, Greek, English Bible. The actual words in Daniel 3.25 in the Hebrew Bible read like this. The look of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So friends, commentators have two opinions on this. The first one is that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that fourth person in the fire as one of the pantheon of the gods, but isn't completely sure who that is. The other idea is that Daniel and his three friends had so witnessed to King Nebuchadnezzar about their God, about Jehovah, about Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he knew that Yahweh, Jehovah, Israel's God had come to rescue his three boys. I thought that was fascinating. And so the translators of our Bibles have translated it, the look of the fourth is like the son of God. But the original Hebrew says a son of the gods. I've got another question uh, for you while we're here. How should we handle trials when we see the three boys in the fiery furnace? Let me share with you one of my favorite texts in Isaiah 43 and verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Friends, we've just gone through the COVID-19 pandemic and it rolls on. I'm wondering if anyone has felt at times like they're drowning, that they just get knocked down, 
and then they get up again and they get knocked down again, that the waters keep rising. God has a promise for people who are going through great trauma, and maybe some of you are or have been or will be. And so he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. He's promising that you won't drown. I guess it's well over a year that we went through the bushfires here in Australia and some people also feel that they've been burned either by people or events. God says in Isaiah 43 and verse 2, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. I'm remembering the King James, I've memorized this, neither shall the, uh, it says, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And then in verse 3, who's giving us these promises? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Friends, you might have your, your, your pen handy. You might want to jot down just in the margin there on the left-hand side that beautiful promise in Isaiah 43, 2 and 3. So the question comes, will God always save us from, our, from the tests of our faith? My answer is yes and no, and I think that's a pretty, uh, a pretty good answer. Um, let's go to scripture for the answer. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that God is faithful and will not let you be tempted more than you can bear, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So friends, God's way through trials is not over, around or under. God's way is to help us to get through it. And how does he do that? Well, you know the answer, don't you? He stands there in the fire right with us as we go through trials and suffering. I'm reading the note under question four, halfway down page three. What a revelation of God. As his servants go through the fiery furnace, the Son of God goes through the fire with them. Here is a tremendous picture of Jesus. He comes to deliver his people in the midst of their fiery trials. God is the deliverer of God's people. Let me say amen and amen. We go on to question five. Describe the one who brings encouragement to Daniel in a later vision. So what we're seeking here is in this cosmic conflict, we're looking first at who is the mighty deliverer of the book of Daniel. And we need to prove that from scripture. So let's go to Daniel 10 verses five and six to get the answer. Daniel says, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of euphans. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So let's uh, describe and write down, and many of you have done this for homework, the one who appears in Daniel 10, and let's then try and identify him. He's clothed in linen. This is beautiful, white, pure linen. He's girded with gold. His body's like beryl. Beryl is a yellow and very hard stone. And so his body is strong and it's powerful. It's like appearance of light. There's flame fire, but James says torches of fire. He has a feet like burnished bronze in colour. Sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. 
And so it's a very deep, rich sound like the voice of many waters. We go to question six, and now we jump to Revelation 1, and we describe being Revelation. We go to Revelation 1, 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. There's our first two answers, garment and golden. Verse 14 of Revelation 1, his hair and head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, 15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice at the sound of many waters. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. So here, John the Revelator seems a, sees a similar being to the one Daniel saw, if not the same. This being is clothed with a garment down his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. His voice is the sound of many waters, very deep, very bassy. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Can anyone guess who this is? Please have a look at the screen. In comparing the descriptions, I read the note under question six. It's obvious that Daniel and John the Revelator saw the same person. But we need to find out who that is. So let's come to question seven at the bottom of page three. Who is this one who appeared to Daniel and to John in Revelation 1 and verse 13? Please come over the page with me now. In Revelation 1.13, in the New King James Version, we read, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Friends, I guess there's no surprises that we are seeing here, as both men are in vision, the Son of Man is our answer at the bottom of page four. The note says it is Christ himself who is pictured as being the Son of Man in Daniel and Revelation. The one pictured as the deliverer, the one who has constant communion with his servant in both Old and New Testament times, is none other than Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, I can see a problem here, and I have a question. Please turn with me to the top of page five. Maybe the question's obvious, maybe it's not. It's obvious to me. How can Jesus Christ be depicted and be appearing in the Old Testament? And so our setting is entitled, Who is Christ? Let's find out who he is. And so we go to Daniel 3. Daniel has pictured Christ as the mighty deliverer, the one who appears in the fiery furnace, as well as the one who at times brings him assurance of uh, his visions. Yet Christ was not born until 500 years after the time of Daniel. How can that be? It is essential we carefully examine the subject of the identity of Jesus Christ before we delve more deeply into our study of the book of Daniel. So friends, as you look at the screen, 
these are all messianic, messianic prophecies, place of his birth, manner of his birth, his betrayal. Uh, for 30 pieces of silver, the manner of his death, question eight. The Bible predicted the birth of Christ, of Jesus Christ, in what place? And we go back to the Old Testament of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, this is the little town of Bethlehem you've heard so much about. Though you are little, you're a little town among the thousands of, thousands of which tribe? I guess I could hear you shout out Judah. It's the tribe of Judah. Please remember that. I want to come back to that in a moment. Yet out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose sons are from of old, from everlasting. Now, the question comes, why was it mentioned that Bethlehem had two names? Surely it's just the town of Bethlehem. But God has written in there that it was to be Bethlehem Ephratah. And so the answer is Bethlehem. And Ephratah is the old name for Bethlehem. Now, I'd like to just take a moment to just put up a map on the screen and explain a little bit more about Bethlehem. So friends, Bethlehem means, as you can see there on the top left of the screen, house of bread. But the problem is in scripture, there are two Bethlehems. There's one in the south in Judah. And the one in Judah is also the original name of Ephrath. And you can find that in Genesis 35, 19. You might like to write that in the margin of your lesson. Ephrath was the original name for Bethlehem. And Ephrath meant to be fertile. It's a very, very fertile place. And that's where the town was busy. But there's also another Bethlehem north, Zebulun. So some commentators and critics have said, well, pfft, there were two Bethlehems. You know, it had to be a 50-50 chance of Jesus being born in one of them. But friends, this was very, very specific. The one in Zebulun is mentioned in Joshua 19, 15 and 16. You might like to write that down. Um, but friends, it was very specific. The scripture said that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah of the tribe of Judah. And that is one of the messianic prophecies, prophecies that you can see right here came true. Let's go to question nine. How does the Bible describe the one born in Bethlehem? But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. There is our answer. Whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Friends, that Greek word is aeons or eons, meaning, uh, you know, millennia of time let me share with you the note under question nine halfway down page five the one born in bethlehem did not have his origin in bethlehem the scriptures clearly indicate that christ pre-existed before his birth in bethlehem it tells us he's been going forth from everlasting if christ is from everlasting there could never have been a time when he was not in existence. This text indicates that his goings forth are from everlasting. In other words, he's continually gone forth to help his people from everlasting. We've seen that Christ was active in Daniel's time by appearing in the midst of the fiery furnace with the three Hebrews, as well as appearing to bring encouragement to Daniel in vision. It would be well for us to examine other 
Old Testament passages illustrating Christ's involvement with his people. Question 10, was Christ involved in the creation? Now, this is a key text, and I hope you spent some time pouring over this uh, in the past week. Colossians 1, verses 14 to 16. I'm going to back up to get the context, if you wouldn't mind. And I'm going to start off in verse 13, halfway through verse 13. I've, I've noted it there on the screen as Colossians 1, 13b to 16. But into the kingdom of the Son of his love, so the Subject in the context here is the son of God's love, that is God's son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this son of God is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I hope you won't mind, but I've inserted there in brackets a question mark. Friends, there are religions today who teach that Jesus Christ is literally God's son, meaning that he was created by God. Now, if he is a created being, I don't believe that any created being could save us from our sins. And so this raises a huge doubt in my mind if this is true. So let's go to verse 16. For by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. There's our end. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth. So friends, was Christ involved in the creation? He certainly was. Let me read the note under 10. While the Father and the Holy Spirit clearly were involved in creative activity, the Bible also clearly indicates that Jesus Christ was involved in every aspect of creation. All things were created through him and by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I want to draw your attention to the screen for some extra material. I'm going back to this verse. This is not in the lesson. We are not starting verse 11, uh, question 11. So please just direct your attention to the screen. So in Colossians 1.13, we have verse 13 and verse 15. The subject is the Son, and it says that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. So friends, let's find out in the Greek, what does the word firstborn mean? It is proto, meaning first, and tokos, meaning born. The word firstborn in the Greek is firstborn but it does not mean born first. I hope that's not confusing. Firstborn means preeminent one, important one, active agent. So maybe we can research a little bit more into this. What does firstborn really mean? And rather than me giving you the answer, let's go to scripture. If you've got your pen there, I'd like you to jot in to your lesson opposite question 10, the bottom of page five, Right in there, Psalm 89, 20 and 27. This is a reference to King David. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him, God says. Then verse 27 of Psalm 89. Also, I will make him, King David, my firstborn. And then God explains what he means by that. He'll make him higher than the kings of the earth. Firstborn denotes position, authority, importance, preeminence. That's what the word means in scripture. 
So let me give you two reasons why this is as it is. Firstly, the facts concerning King David. David was not God's literal firstborn. Who was? Of course, Adam was God's firstborn. Not literally, but he was a son of God. Number two, David, King David, was not even the firstborn of his family. Can you remember what order David was in? Some of you will remember that he was the youngest. He was the eighth, and so he had seven brothers. So let's go back now to that we understand firstborn means preeminent one and not born first. Let's go to a Greek word that does mean first made or first created. The word is protok, tistos. Two parts to that, proto meaning first, protok. Tistos means first created or first made. Now, this word is not used in Colossians 1.15. It's never used there, nor anywhere else to refer to the Son of God as a created being. I hope a few of you there are sitting back saying, fantastic news, this is great news. And friends, let me be very, very clear of the position of this Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. And I will read the screen. Jesus Christ is not and never was a created being, for none of us can be saved by a created being, or an angel could have died to save us. We're looking at question 11 at the bottom of page 5. We're looking at who is this Jesus Christ, and how is he involved in the Old Testament? Question 11 says, who was the rock? that was with the children of Israel as they journeyed out of Egypt and into the promised land. We go to Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking here about the Red Sea crossing. And he then says that when they went through the sea, they were all baptized, verse 2, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then verse 3 says, all ate the same spiritual food. So if I asked you what was the spiritual food of the Old Testament time, starting with them, I'm sure you're all yelling out manna. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. What was that? That was the water that God provided for them in the desert. Beautiful, pure, living water. But verse 4 is the answer to our question. For they, God's people in the Old Testament, drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Friends, there's our answer. Who was the rock that was with the children of Israel as they journeyed out of Egypt and into the promised land? That rock was Christ. I'm just going to pause a moment just to uh, share with you some extra information. Please direct your attention to the screen. We're not looking at the lesson. So, friends, Moses takes the children of Israel through the Red Sea. They're on their way to the Promised Land. And, of course, they start complaining because they run out of water. There's a very, very interesting passage here that's not in the lesson. If you want to note it down, it's Numbers, N-U-M. Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 to 12. It's uh, page 146 in your Bibles. If you want to look it up yourself, you're welcome to. I'm going to take a few moments to just go through this because it pertains to the rock and the meaning of Christ as the rock. Numbers 20, verse 7, New King James Version. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, strike the rock, 
before their eyes and it will yield water. Friends, I'm stopping there. Did God's word tell, uh, was the word of God to Moses that he should strike the rock? Well, if you can read the scripture on the screen, and I'm sure you all can, or you're looking at it in your Bibles, you, Moses was specifically told to only speak to the rock, to speak to it. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he, God, commanded him. Let's pick up the story in Numbers 20, verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Friends, I'm going to pause there because there's immediately a problem. Moses is angry with the people. He's tired of the whinging and whining. We want to go back to Egypt. We want the flesh pots of Egypt. We want, uh, we're sick of banana manna, manna burgers. We're sick to death of manna. We want the flesh foods. You know, God's people don't change much today, do they? Must we bring water for you out of this rock, friends? Here, Moses sins because not only is he angry with God's people, it's understandable, of course. But friends, he's claimed the prerogative of God. He's taken God's place. He's put himself in the place of God and said, must I bring water out of this rock for you? Verse 11, he goes further into sin. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Friends, in uh, Ezekiel, sorry, in Exodus, uh, chapter 17 and verse 6, Moses was told to what? This happened before. He was told to strike the rock. So what was very important about this was that Christ was the rock. How many times was Christ to be struck? How many times was he to suffer and die? Was it once? Was it twice? Was it 10 times? 12? 144? The answer is obvious. Christ was only to die for us to be struck and to be bruised and damaged once. And so the typology is that Christ is the rock of God. He is the solid foundation under our feet. He is the only dependable one in shifting sands of these last days. And so the sin here is Moses lifts his hand and he strikes the rock twice with his rod. He was told to speak to it. And so now he's destroyed the typology of Christ being struck once, which he'd already done in Exodus 17 and verse 6. You can write that down. I'm going to read verse 11 again. And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Notice God's grace and mercy here. God graciously does not cut the people off from water because they're famished and thirsty. Friends, it's an absolute tragedy what happened here. And I think we can all empathize with Moses. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. Friends, Moses has gone into high-handed sin against God. He's disobeyed speaking to the rock. He struck the rock twice and destroyed the typology. I think Moses would have been in less trouble if he'd hit the people instead of the rock. And so, friends, there are consequences. Friends, I have people tell me today, I don't think God's going to keep me out of heaven for this. I don't think God's going to keep me out of heaven for that. Oh, don't be so narrow-minded. God's just going to save everyone. Friends, 
have a read of the Old Testament and understand that God cannot in any way brook with disobedience. I want you to come with me to Deuteronomy 34, 1-8, and it's on the screen. How did this all play out? Then Moses went up from the plains to Moab, to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land. I've been privileged to be uh, in the Middle East in January 81, and uh, also in May 2005. And uh, friends, I've seen this land. Verse 4, then the Lord said to him, said to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And verse 6, and he, God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, but no one knows his grave to this day. Verse 7, was uh, Moses old and rickety? No, look at this. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses for 30 days. Friends, I think there's a lesson that we can learn in this story, and it's on the screen. It's pretty simple, really. And I don't think you should be surprised that God means what he says, and he says what he means. But this story comes out with a happy ending, doesn't it? Because Michael comes down and resurrects Moses. You can find that in Jude chapter 9. And I'm sure we will cover that in another lesson. I'm reading the note under question 11 at the bottom of page 5. Not only was Christ involved in the creation of the world, but this text reveals that he was the one who led Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. In that capacity, Christ worked with his ancient people. Thus, we see that the one who stands for the people of God is none other than Jesus Christ. Friends, before you turn the page, I have a text for you to write at the bottom of page five. And I think some of you are saying, Pastor, give us a rock text. Give us a text from the Old Testament that proves that God and Christ are our rock. I'm giving you Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 as written by Moses. I'll say it again. Deuteronomy chapter 32, DT, 32 is the abbreviation, verses 3 and 4. Moses wrote, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, for he is the what? For he is the rock. Friends, as the song says, he is the rock of our salvation. Join me at the top of page 6. We're discovering who Christ is in Scripture. What did Christ do for us in 1 Corinthians 15.3? I think everyone will know this. Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And there's our answer, that Christ died for our sins. The note says Christ is on our side. He is for us and not against us. He died for us. So friends, as you look at this picture on the screen, you see Jesus raising out his arms like that and saying, as he died on the cross for you and for me, I love you this much. There you have the Son of God painted black. God for Satan in the final act on a cross 
on a cross on Calvary, and yet he still loves us. Thirteen, is Christ fully God? We need to go to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 and verse 14. We're asking the question, is Christ fully God? He's the God man. Is he fully man? Is he fully God? How does it work? John 1, 1 to 3 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I'm just going to slow that down because the word, word, I'll say it slowly, the word, word is actually a code word. So the word, word has a greater meaning. What is it? Well, the answer is in verse 14. And those of you who've done your homework already know. Verse 2, this word was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. So this word is a person that sounds like a male being and without him, nothing was made that was made. Let's jump to verse 14 in John chapter 1. And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. There's our answer. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us and he was God's word. So I'm going to go back to verse one and we're going to transfer. Now that we know who the word is, we're going to use the word Jesus. So I'm going to read it, transposing the word Jesus for word. John writes, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Friends, that's very, very powerful, isn't it? Jesus is part of the family of God and Jesus is equal with God the Father and he is also equal with God the Holy Spirit. And so we are asked, is Christ fully God? Yes, he's 100% God and the mystery is he's also 100% flesh or 100% man. Praise God, this one who became man is fully and equally God. Friends, on the screen, I've tried to direct your attention to a, an illustration that shows Jesus in his modes as a man, but also in his mode as God, the Son of God. And I think the ascension brings both those points out powerfully. Continue to look at the screen because I have a question. Do you know what the two words of God are? The illustration should help you. The first word of God is Jesus, the living word. And then we have Bible. The scriptures, of course, are the written word. And I'm challenging you tonight. Are you studying God's written word to bring you Jesus, the living word? That's the question I want you to be asking yourself tonight. I know many of you study God's word faithfully. And that time in the morning is a precious time. Friends, if we're not going to read God's word now, it's unlikely that we're going to start tomorrow morning. But if you haven't started, I ask you to ask God to give you the power and the time and the ability to start tomorrow morning. We're at uh, question 14, halfway down page six. Was Christ also man? I think we know the answer to that. In Hebrews 2.14, inasmuch then, here's our answer, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. So that is us. We are partakers of flesh and blood. Christ, he himself likewise shared in the same. He had to take flesh and blood too. That through death, Jesus Christ might destroy him who had the power of death, that is Satan, the devil. 
Verse 17 of Hebrews 2, Therefore in all things he, Christ, had to be made like his brethren, the human race, that Christ might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Friends, a propitiation is an expiation. It's the spreading of, of uh, blood. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's to make an atonement for sin. Verse 18, for in that he himself, Christ, has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Was Christ also a man? He certainly was. And as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that is flesh and blood, and he was made like his brethren. Not only is Christ fully God, but he is also fully man. He is one with us. God's great gift to us is the gift of Jesus Christ who became man that he might redeem us. Question 15, how does Christ understand humanity in Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So does Jesus understand us? He certainly does. He's our high priest. He empathizes. He sympathizes with us, with our sins, our weaknesses and our temptations. And he feels our pain. So as a man, Christ fully understands us. Question 16. How many members are in the Godhead? Would you say one? Would you say three? Would you say 12? What is the answer? We go to Matthew 28, 19, the words of Jesus and in your Bibles that were given out to you. If you ordered them in the red type, Jesus speaks. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How many members are there in the Godhead? Jesus said there were three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let me read the note. The Bible indicates that there are three personal beings in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. While they are three persons, they are one in unity, character, and purpose. Friends, notice they're not all in one body or one body with three heads. They are one. They are united in unity, character, and purpose. The note says, since the Godhead is united in its purpose toward man, the Godhead is totally on man's side. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working for the salvation, redemption, and deliverance of the human race. Before we hurry on to uh, the oppressor of God's people, can I have your attention on the screen? It's very hard to get a photograph that depicts the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think this um, beautiful illustration done by Oxygen Images in the United States um, does it beautifully. You can see the father placing his hand on Jesus, his son. And there the Holy Spirit is represented by the dove. So friends, let's go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19. He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. Did he say in the names of God? No, he didn't. He said in the name of God, the father and God, the son, and God the Holy Ghost or God the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice there that Jesus gives a rank. He gives a rank to the Godhead. Now, I want you to imagine how this might work here on earth. If we imagine that the Father, and this is a very, very poor illustration, 
terrible illustration, but it's the best I've got at the moment. If you can imagine that the father is equivalent uh, to Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, the son is certainly not equivalent to Prince Charles, but we then go to the Holy Spirit as William. We know that the Queen is ranked number one, Prince Charles number two, and Prince William number three. Yet the point is they are all truly royal individuals, and yet they're ranked, and yet they're all royal. And so it is with the Godhead. They are all equally divine, but they are ranked Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a very old illustration, but I think it's fantastic. It shows the triune God. It shows the Trinity of the things in our world. So the sun is represented by three things, light, heat, and power. Across on the right, matter is represented by solids, liquids, and gases. Space is, uh, is illustrated by length, breadth, and height. And time is represented by past, present, and future. So notice here that the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are three separate and distinct persons who make up the family of God. We go to our third heading. It's at the bottom of page six. Who is the oppressor of God's people? I think you might know, but let's dig in. Question 17, what are the names that scripture gives to the one who opposes Christ? In Isaiah 14, 12 and Revelation 12, 9, we read, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground who weakened the nations. And then 12, 9 in Revelation, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. There's three of his names four of his names, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Satan is known as Lucifer, dragon, serpent, devil, and Satan. I understand that in satanic covens, they like to refer to him as Lucifer and not Satan. He prefers the name Lucifer or light bearer. If we then look at these names, we also get a glimpse into the character of the devil. In Lucifer, we see his original status as a light bearer, a covering cherub in heaven. In the word dragon, we see a persecuting power, something powerful and scary. In the word uh, serpent in Genesis chapter 3, we see there the role of a deceiver and deception. And then with devil and Satan, we have the names for our adversary and our accuser. All right, would you come with me to question 18 at the top of page 7. Under the symbolism of the king of Tyre, God describes the creation of Lucifer. What kind of being was Lucifer when he was created? You know, the problem is, friends, today that people say God created a devil so he'd look better. So we'd fall more in love with God because he made a devil that we'd hate. Uh, what's the truth? Well, Scripture has the answer. Let's go to Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 15. God said to Ezekiel, he calls Ezekiel here, son of man, Ezekiel, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Son of man, God says to Ezekiel, take up a lamentation. Now, lamentation is not a lamington 
We don't hear this word today. Lamentation is a lament. It's a funeral dirge for the king of Tyre. It's bad news from God to the king of Tyre. And say to the king of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. So Ezekiel's to quote the Lord God. King of Tyre, you were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and you were perfect in beauty. Now, when we dive into Ezekiel 28 and verse 13, it says that this being was in Eden, the garden of God. Now, let's just review who was in the garden of Eden. We know Adam, then Eve was created. We know there was the serpent in the tree that was possessed by Satan. And then we know there was the Lord God walking in the garden. Friends, there's no mention of the king of Tyre, but there was an evil person in the garden, and that is Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the dragon. And so the king of Tyre, if I just go back, was such an evil man that he is addressed as being as one of the followers of the serpent back in the Garden of Eden. I'll read it again. You were the seal of perfection. This is a commentary to the king of Tyre, but the one who stands behind the king of Tyre and controls him. You, Lucifer, Satan, were the seal of perfection when you were created. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, Lucifer. Every precious stone was your covering. You were wearing sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Lucifer wore these jewels in heaven to reflect black back to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the glory of God. But instead of reflecting to them, he took the glory to himself. The next statement in Ezekiel 28, 13 is remarkable. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Friends, commentators suggest that Lucifer could sing, and I was made to study piano by my mother and father, he could sing soprano, alto, tenor, and bass all on his own. So if we have any musicians here tonight that you play instruments or you can sing, can you imagine a voice that can sing four-part harmony on his own? Satan was a master musician. He's certainly a master musician down here on earth, isn't he? Because when he inspired and caused men to write the song, Stairway to Heaven, it makes sense forward, but when you reverse it, when you backward mask it, you listen and it says, I will sing because I live with Satan. When you listen to the song by Queen, and I do not advocate this, another one bites the dust. It's a big song in the 80s. When you reverse that, it says, we decided to smoke marijuana. Friends, Satan is a master musician. And all of the talents he had in heaven to glorify God and lead the choirs and sing in four-part harmony on his own have been used down here to corrupt man and bring de degradation and sin. And so this says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Verse 14, Lucifer, Satan, you were the anointed cherub who covers one of the great angels in heaven with, with Gabriel and Lucifer there, covering in the sanctuary. I establish you, God said, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Friends, today we have people who do fire walking, people out in the Pacific Islands, people in Haiti. But friends, today it's kind of like a corporate event or it was until in the last few years, 
executives weren't properly hypnotized or drunk enough and they started to burn their feet on the hot coals and these corporate events. Something happened in heaven where they walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones, but Satan brings stuff from heaven and he brings it down to earth and he corrupts it and he degrades it and he defiles it. Verse 15. Did God make a devil, friends? Here's the answer. You were what? What was Lucifer in heaven? Was he a devil? Was he created a devil? You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till what was found in you. That old word iniquity means sin. There were no defects in Lucifer until he made a devil out of himself. Question 18, under the symbolism of the king of Tyre, God describes the creation of Lucifer. What kind of being was Lucifer when he was created? You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Let me share with you the note. God did not create a bad devil so that we'd love him by default. He created a perfect angel named Lucifer, the light bearer, the son of the morning, the morning star. And Lucifer became evil by his own choice, his own free will. Verse 19, what did Lucifer attempt to do in heaven in Isaiah 14 verse 13? Notice here that Lucifer had eye disease. I don't mean he needs, needed to go to Specsaver, but it was about the tremendous pride in his heart. God says, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Lucifer said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Lucifer said, I will also sit on the Mount of Congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then the great blasphemy, I will be like the most high. And I'm adding the word God. And so, friends, Lucifer claims the throne room of heaven. I will ascend heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars or angels of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Friends, the word north is always a reference to heaven. And it also refers to the kingdom of heaven as in terms of its location in the stars. We uh, understand that the Orion uh, Nebula is very, very special. And that is a reference to the north and happy to share more on that at another time. The note under question 19. Lucifer wanted to sit where God sat. He wanted to rule from where God ruled. He felt he could do a better job of ruling the universe than God could. Thus, he rebelled against God. Friends, if we draw the curtain back here and you just have a look at the screen, Lucifer became jealous of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, especially Jesus, in that as a created being, he was not invited to the discussion over the peopling of planet Earth with humans, the creation of planet Earth and the creation of humanity. And so as he became bitter and jealous and felt that uh, Christ was his rival. He went speaking to the angels, asking them, why are we doing all these things for God? Why are we running here? Why are we running there? Why are we doing all these things? And the angel said, because God loves us and we love him. And he said, no, we are slaves. We are captives to his will. And we have no freedom of ourselves. If you follow me, I will give you freedom. Well, friends, here we are on planet Earth. Are you feeling the freedom? Is it blowing through your hair like the wind? Friends, this freedom and this freedom born in rebellion 
we have paid a very heavy price for it. And so Lucifer began his doubts, his unbelief, his insinuation about the character of God and his hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question 20, as a result of Lucifer's rebellion, what happened to him in, in Revelation 12, 7 to 9? We've already read this. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. We understand that Michael is another reference to the Christ. Michael means one like or one equal with God. Do some more study. That in another lesson. Verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So there's our answer as a result of Lucifer's rebellion. What happened to him? He was cast down to the earth. Friends, amazing. War took place in heaven. The rebellion that began with Lucifer finally resulted in his being cast out of heaven. Question 21, since Lucifer was cast out of heaven, whom does he seek to deceive? And so verse 12 again, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. There's our answer. Look out inhabitants of the earth, look out inhabitants of the world and the sea. For the devil has come down to you. Is he angry? He has great wrath. Wrath is even worse than anger because he knows that he has a what? A short time. What does this short time mean? Before we go again, have a look at the screen. Here's a view of the short time of biblical chronology. This is what the Bible says about its own dating. We have Eden, 4000 BC. Today we have 2000 AD. From the time of Adam and Eve, roughly to Noah's Ark, 2000 years. From Noah's Ark to the cross of Jesus Christ, 2000 years. And from Jesus' death to today, roughly 2000 years. Friends, the Bible speaks about a time period that's very, very short. The devil knows he only has a very short period of time. Thank God that he hasn't left us here for millions of years with this horrible being, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. Now, friends, I'm not going in tonight to the arguments over uh, dating. Um, people speak about geology with, with uh, long dating years and billions and millions of years. But friends, I just want to remind you that God made a mature creation. Adam and Eve were not babies in nappies in the Garden of Eden. They were made mature and so is the creation. And that relates to the geology and the, the dating. So I want you to be aware of that. All right, we're reading uh, question 21. Since Lucifer was cast out of heaven, whom does he seek to deceive? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And I ask you today, do you think he's deceived the inhabitants of the earth? He certainly has. Most people don't even believe he exists. That's a pretty good deception. How does Satan deceive people in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15? It's an amazing text. Thank God for Paul. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, they're deceptive, they're transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into a what? An angel of light. 15. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Friends, Satan here appears as an angel of light. Does anyone remember John 8, 12? Jesus stood outside the temple and the two big lamps were burning. And he said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And so what does Satan do? He comes as a counterfeit angel of light. 
I'd like to go further there, but I restrain myself. Part B, how does Satan deceive people? His ministers, his angels, his agents also can appear as ministers of righteousness, but they are not. And it says Satan does not appear as an evil being, does he? He attempts to deceive people by professing to have great light and truth. Question 23, can Satan really work miracles? Unfortunately, he can. And we find that in Revelation 16 and verse 13. Friends, the King James says, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs. And so the answer is signs. But I prefer actually the King James version here. I use the New King James in seminars. It seems to be easier for people to, uh, to actually understand. But look at the bottom of the screen. For it says in the King James in Revelation 16, 14, for they, the spirits, are the spirits of devils. And what are they working? Not just performing signs. They're working what? They're working miracles. I'd like you to put after the word signs in your lesson forward slash miracles. That'll be in the quiz. So I hope you remember there are counterfeit miracles. They are the spirits of demons performing signs or counterfeit miracles. Question 24, how effective are Satan's deceptions? We're at the bottom of page seven. They're very effective for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. There's no answer, friends, if possible, even the elect. Does anyone remember this Newsweek magazine a few years ago, the Heaven's Gate mass suicide? This man led people, a lot of rich people, to uh, a compound where they killed themselves. They believed their spirits would then leave their bodies and go in a UFO to another place of the universe. Friends, the world's always been full of false Christs and false prophets. We even had a being a few years ago in Queensland who called himself Jesus Christ and his wife was known as Mary Magdalene and they married. I guess only in Queensland. But friends, I just want to remind you tonight that there are many false Christs and false prophets today, and you might even see them on YouTube. How effective are Satan's deceptions to deceive, if possible, even the very elect? What does that mean, the possible, the very elect? It means even the chosen ones, the ones who are reading God's word and following the Lamb, following Jesus wherever he goes, even God's true saints. It is possible they may be deceived unless they are in the word and in the spirit every day. Let all the people say, Amen. The deceptions of Satan in the last days, the note under 24, will be so convincing that many will be deceived. Our faith cannot rest on miracles, signs or wonders. Our faith can safely rest only on the word of God. Question 25. With whom does Satan wage war in these last days? Come over the page to our final page as we conclude our lesson. In Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon, do we know who the dragon is? We've learned tonight the dragon is Satan. He's enraged with the woman. We haven't learned who that is yet, but it stands for God's last day, pure and true church, as you can see in the illustration. And Satan goes to make war with the rest of her offspring, the pure church, her offspring, her last day people. And these last day church people keep two things. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Friends, I actually prefer here, I know the New King James has the rest of her offspring, but I like the word the remnant in the King James Version. It says with the remnant of her seed, the New King James says the rest of her offspring. 
who do two things. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are signs of God's last day people. And I want to tell you, those people are not all in one church. Let all the people say, Amen. We go on to question 26. With whom do God's people have to contend in the battle of this life? Ephesians 6, 12. This refers to spiritual warfare, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So our answer is we're not just dealing with humans here, flesh and blood. We're warring up against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Friends, if the curtain could be drawn back and you could see that Satan and his evil angels are targeting you every day to snuff out your life, to put a blockage between you and the Lord God, to make you hate Jesus, to make you despise God's word and to lead you into doubt and unbelief, you would be amazed at the warfare that's going on against you. And therefore, we need protection against that warfare. And if you've been suffering uh, in this way, with these huge temptations and being smashed into the ground by the devil, then you need the answer that's coming. Let me read the note under 26. Christians are not in warfare with other people, but with unseen forces who are constantly seeking to destroy them. The New Testament clearly amplifies what was revealed to Daniel, that there is a great controversy going on between Christ and Satan, a battle being fought for every soul. Question 27, how can the Christian resist the adversary? The adversary, Satan, we're told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the tricks, the tests, the temptations of the devil. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Friends, you and I need to put on the whole armor of God, but most Christians don't even know what it is. In question 28, we ask, what is this armor? Ephesians 6, 14 to 17, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. There's the first answer. Write it in if you're catching up tonight. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, there's the second answer. And you need to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need peace. We need good news in this world. And so there's our answers. Girding your waist with truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Friends, if there's ever a time when we need to be full of truth and righteousness, it's in these last days when people are so fearful of what's coming on the earth. Let's have a look at D, E, and F. We're going back to Ephesians 6, 16, and 17. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians above all taking the shield of what? Are you using the shield of faith, friends, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one? And that is his multitude of temptations. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, the shield of faith is based on God's word. The helmet of salvation protects the mind. It's a protection of being under the covering and blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of the Father. And the sword of the spirit, the sword of the spirit here, friends, is the word of God. The sword of the spirit is the word of God and it is powerful. Please read it. Please use it. We're at the note under 28. Our only defense against the wiles of the devil is a firm trust in Jesus Christ, a deep personal relationship with him and a continual study of his word. This is the only way to meet the adversary. 
the central theme of the book of Daniel is the same as the central theme running through all scripture. The book of Daniel reveals that there is a great cosmic conflict between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels. Behind all the scenes of human history, unseen forces are at work. A battle's being fought for every soul. The book of Daniel can only be understood against the backdrop of this great controversy. The good news is that the book of Daniel is that God wins the victory. Satan and his hosts will be defeated and God's people will be delivered. Friends, did you need some good news tonight? There it is. I'm praying that you're going to be on the side that overcomes. Do you want to be there? Friends, make every effort to attend these Prophecy Seminar lessons. I know the seminar goes for quite a few weeks. It certainly does. But friends, if you put this time aside and you immerse yourself in God's word, you will have no understanding of how rich the blessings and the anointing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit will rest on your life. God's word's powerful. And as you open your life to the spirit, you will receive faith, hope and comfort of the scriptures to be able to deal with what's happening in these last days. And you will also have information in your folder that you can share with others, friends, family and workers. The final question, number 29, as I said, it was a big lesson tonight and it won't be this big next week. Question 29, do you wish to align yourself with Jesus Christ and triumph with God's people when Christ ends a great controversy? Friends, I've written, yes, I do. And I'm hoping that's your response as well. Friends, what did we discover in tonight's lesson? Our theme questions are, what are five names for Satan? We learned they were drevel, devil, sorry. If you notice the word devil is made up of two words, de evil so the evil devil dragon serpent satan and accuser and lucifer is also in uh, in corinthians named as the prince of this world unbeaten using the body of a snake he was manifested first in heaven as a beautiful angel who created him jesus christ created all the angels in and challenge God for the rulership of heaven and then the universe. Why didn't God uh, ultimately destroy him as soon as he rebelled? Friends, the created beings would have misunderstood such an action and served God out of fear and not out of love. Can you imagine that when Satan stepped forward and challenged for the throne of the universe, God had just gone zap, a bolt of lightning and killed him outright. I think after that, to use a colloquialism, the angels would have all been going, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. Yes, sir, whatever you say, don't cross God. If you cross him, you ask a question or you exert your freedom, he'll just kill you. Friends, God's system is not a system of fear and compulsion like we're getting down here. God's system is a system. It's a relationship of love and he wants us to serve him out of love and never out of fear. And that's why he had to allow the great controversy to play out until everyone could see Lucifer and Satan for what he was. Friends, thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, that's been uh, our second session this week. Uh, please invite someone next week. And I also want to tell you that next Tuesday and Wednesday night, same time, same channel, the controversy begins. We actually start Daniel chapter one next week. It's not a huge lesson. We've taken a little bit of extra time tonight. I hope you'll forgive me for that. I don't like rushing through the lessons, but if you can't stay the whole time, then you leave when you're ready. Well, let's end with prayer. 
Loving Heavenly Father, I just bow my head before you tonight saying thank you so much for pulling the curtain back on the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for telling us that Jesus Christ is our cosmic deliverer. And thank you for revealing that Satan, the devil, the deceiver is the one that is trying to prevent all of us from gaining a place in the kingdom of heaven. Father, I pray for every head bowed here tonight. I pray for all those who will watch this on YouTube. I pray, Lord, that this prophecy seminar will give us a strong footing to understand the plan of salvation, that Jesus is coming very soon. And through the stories of Daniel and Revelation, that we will learn our place in this role in the great drama of the ages and we'll be ready when Jesus comes back is my prayer for everyone who hears this tonight and this time in Jesus' precious name. Let all the people say, Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.